0: Our lesson of the day comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians from chapter 4. I will read verses 10 to 13. Here again, God's word. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, now speak to us the truth concerning your son through your word. Bless me as I preach bless those gathered here to listen. Father, may your word go forth with power to transform us and to transform the world. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What do you think is the most misused verse in the whole Bible? What verse gets taken out of context more than any other? If we respect the Bible, uh, we should not want the Scriptures to be twisted. Uh, You don't like it when your words are taken out of context. I doubt God uh, likes it either. Uh, I don't think that there could be any doubt that the verse most often taken out of context is the one we just read, Philippians 4.13, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, one person said this verse is misused so much it might as well say, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Because <laughs> that's about how it works. Uh, Philippians 4.13 is a very popular verse. It's popular in locker rooms before games. It's popular in classrooms before exams. Uh, even the great Tim Tebow, uh, I think, might be guilty of misusing this verse. Maybe just a little bit. Uh, when this verse is taken out of context... It is usually used to say that Christ can help me do anything. Christ can help me perform some great feat to accomplish some great achievement. And so the verse becomes a kind of shot of confidence in the arm. Uh, I can hit that home run. I can ace that test. But while it's true, sometimes Christ does enable us to do great feats, to achieve great things. That's not really what this verse is about in context. Uh, In context, I think it's actually about something even more amazing and difficult and profound. It is not about scoring touchdowns in a ball game. It's about being content in any circumstance. And I will tell you, I think attaining contentment is actually a much greater feat uh, than scoring touchdowns. I can prove it to you. Uh, Just ask Tom Brady. Uh, Tom Brady has certainly scored a few touchdowns in his day. Uh, considered probably the greatest football player of all time, uh, certainly the greatest quarterback of all time. He, he's won multiple – guys, some of you are disagreeing with that. We can talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> but he has won multiple Super Bowls, MVP trophies. He's got it all, right? Uh, he has lived the life. Uh, but a few years ago, this is what he said in an interview. This is actually on uh, 60 Minutes said, well, I do have several Super Bowl rings and still think there's something, why do I still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, you've got what is important. You've reached your goal, your dream, it's your life. Me, I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't what it's all cracked up to be. That's Tom Brady. He's a millionaire, lives in a mansion, has a supermodel wife. He's got everything. He's got the incredible athletic career. He will go down in history as a legend. Tom Brady has everything except for one thing, and that's contentment. The man has it all, but he still isn't satisfied. The man has it all, but he's not content. Why is that? How can that be? He's done all these great feats. He's, of course, scored countless touchdowns, but there's something missing and he knows it. He has not attained contentment. What about you? What about you? Have you attained contentment? Would you describe yourself as a contented person? Would others around you describe you as a contented person? The reality is we live in a culture of discontent. Our culture is constantly discipling us in the ways of discontentedness. It's as if we turn Paul's statement in verse 11 inside out, and we say, in whatever state I am, I am discontent. No matter how bad or good things are going, I am discontent. Contentment is a lost art in our culture. We lack the skills needed to live a contented life. And even if we do great things, We fail at the greater thing of being content. Our culture trains us to live in constant fear of missing out. We have Instagram to make us envy other people's lives. We have Pinterest to make us envy other people's stuff. We've got advertisers who bombard us with their messages 24-7, manipulating us to feel discontented unless we buy their products. Whatever we have, it isn't enough. And actually, I'll tell you, when we're discontent, a host of other sins flow out of that discontentment. Because we're discontent, we start to grumble instead of being grateful. We're selfish rather than sacrificial. We're stingy rather than generous. These are the sins that cluster around discontentment and express themselves through our discontented hearts. Discontentment is a restlessness. It's when you refuse to be satisfied with what god has done or what god has provided it's a refusal to thank god again because we don't thank god we end up grumbling and complaining and blaming god instead we're like the israelites in the wilderness who had been set free from slavery god had done this great thing for them but that wasn't enough they grumbled in their discontentment in fact we can take discontentment back a whole lot further than just the israelites in the wilderness Discontentment goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to the very beginning. In a very real sense, you can say discontentedness is the original sin of the human race. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They had it all, right? They had everything they could possibly want. They had fellowship with God. They had companionship with each other. They had a beautiful garden full of free food to eat. They had a whole world. That was theirs to to rule over, to explore, to develop. They had it all. But was that enough? No. There was one thing they could not have. One tree that God had said, this is off limits. One tree that was forbidden. And so what did they do? They just had to have that one tree. They had virtually everything, but it wasn't enough. They had to have a little bit more. They had to have that one thing that God had said they couldn't have. Of course, we know what they did, and the rest, as they say, is history. Discontentedness has been wreaking havoc with the human race ever since. We constantly want more. We constantly want what we don't have or what we can't have. And of course, discontentment means then that we experience perpetual disappointment with life because nothing is ever good enough. Nothing can ever measure up to our standards. Nothing ever really satisfies. Discontentment steals away our joy. It leads to misery. That's discontentment. But Paul here is talking about contentment. What is contentment? When Paul speaks of contentment, what does he mean? What does he Have in mind. When Paul says he has learned contentment, what is he saying? What has he learned? It's interesting to look at different definitions people have given of contentment uh, over the years, especially in the church. Some have said that contentment is being satisfied with life, it's being satisfied with life, so it's the opposite of envy. Uh, Others have said that contentment is. Uh, having a composed and restful state of mind. And so it's really the opposite of being stressed out. Still others have said that contentment is when your life's priorities and, and your heart's affections are well-ordered. And so it's really the opposite of a chaotic life, a disordered life. And I think all of those are true to a point. But I think Paul's definition of contentment uh, is actually found in a couple places a little bit earlier in this chapter. It's found in part in verse 7 when he speaks of the peace of God that passes understanding. How God will give us this peace. The peace of God that passes understanding. To be content is to have this peace. It's to have the peace of God. It's to be at peace. To be content means you are at peace with God and with yourself and with your station in life. There's a peace that rests over your whole life. I think Paul also defines contentment one verse further back in verse 6 when he says, do not be anxious about anything. To be content is to be free from anxiety. To be content is to be carefree. It means you've been set free from worries. You've taken all your cares and given them over to God because you know He cares for you. And so you don't carry those burdens anymore. You're now contented. You're not weighed down with those anxieties. I think we can go even further. The whole context of Paul's letter to the Philippians helps us understand what he means by contentment. Let me tell you what the situation is here as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. He writes this letter from prison. It is Paul's letter from a Roman jail. Uh, Paul had been in prison for preaching the gospel, and while in prison, uh, the Philippians had sent him a care package, as it were, a, a gift, uh by way of one of their leaders named Epaphroditus. And uh, this gift was to help meet Paul's needs and to alleviate his suffering. Uh, see, back in the first century, uh prisons were very inhumane. They can be very inhumane places today as well, but uh they were they were absolutely brutal back in the first century. Uh and so prisoners actually had to depend on friends and family members to provide even for their basic necessities. The Roman government was not going to provide those things for its prisoners. So friends and family members of the prisoner had to supply those things, had to supply those needs uh, that the prisoner would otherwise lack. And the Philippians had come through for Paul. They had sent this gift that would help him get through and survive in prison. And now Paul is reciprocating their gift to him through Epaphroditus with his own gift that he's going to send back to them also to be delivered through Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus is the one who's taking gift to Paul and then returning a gift from Paul to the Philippians. But this is what's interesting. The, the Philippians have sent this gift to Paul and ostensibly Philippians is going to be Paul's thank you note to the Philippians, where he says, thank you for what you've sent. And he alludes to that several times, but he never actually gets around to thanking the Philippians for their gift. Instead, he thanks God. He thanks God for meeting his needs. He thanks God for working through the Philippians to meet his needs. And then, of course, he says to the Philippians, in effect, saying, I can't meet any of your needs, but God will meet your needs. He says that right at the end of this chapter, towards the end of this chapter, that God will meet the needs of the Philippian church. Now this is what's fascinating. Paul was suffering in prison. He was no doubt lonely. Uh, He was probably cold, hungry, confined. It was not pleasant. And yet in the midst of these circumstances, Paul writes to the Philippians and says, I have learned to be content. The Philippians could have been offended by this. They could have said, hey, we sent you that gift and you're saying you really didn't even need it, that you could be content without it. Paul has said, even in the worst of circumstances, I have learned to be content. Paul can be at peace even in prison. He can be free of anxiety even in jail. And this really is a miracle. That a human could be content in such difficult and agonizing circumstances is truly a miracle. This is really the amazing thing. You read the whole letter of Philippians, and it is a letter full of joy and peace and contentment. And then you remember, oh, this is written from prison. Paul's saying, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Paul is is just bubbling over with joy even in jail. It's just amazing. This is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I am satisfied with God no matter my circumstance. Paul saying, in Christ, I have found a contentment and a peace that does not depend on circumstances, that transcends circumstances, that overcomes circumstances. Paul was free from care. He was free from worry. He had a peace. He had uh, a freedom that his circumstances cannot affect. J.I. Packer defines contentment as an unfettered spirit. And I find that so interesting. Here is Paul fettered in prison, but his heart is not fettered. Even fettered in chains, his heart runs free. That's what contentment looks like. That's how the contented person lives. So Paul can be content whether he has a little or a lot. That's what he says. Whether I'm abounding or whether I am abased. He's saying I can be content in jail or out of jail. Whether I'm full or hungry, I can be content. Paul says he has learned contentment. He's learned the secret to contentment. Because he had to learn contentment, we know contentment was not his natural disposition. It didn't come to Paul naturally. He had to learn it. And I find that so encouraging. Because I need to learn contentment as well. You probably need to learn contentment as well. And so we can sit at Paul's feet here. We can sit at Paul's feet and say, Paul... Teach us your secret. Teach us what you have learned about contentment. And I think Paul would tell us that uh, life, life as a whole, your whole life really is God's classroom. And the lesson God wants to teach you is contentment, this lesson about contentment. And as in any classroom, there are tests. Uh, But actually, most of God's tests for us are pop quizzes, something happens, we didn't see it coming, something doesn't go our way, every time something doesn't go your way, that's one of God's pop quizzes, you've got a chance to learn a new lesson in contentment, to show that you're growing in contentment. But here's the thing, while God gives us these pop quizzes, thankfully God's quizzes are open book. And so you have everything you need to find contentment right here in God's Word. God's Word helps us. God's Word with its promises sustain us. Paul says, I have learned contentment. We're learning contentment as well. But we need to explore this a little further. What does Paul mean by contentment? What exactly does it look like? I think there's actually a a, a contrast here uh, with Stoicism. You ever heard of the Stoics? We still use that term Stoic today. It was an ancient uh, philosophical school of thought. Uh, the Stoics taught contentment as the chief of virtues, the greatest of all virtues. And the Stoics tried to reach a contented state through detachment. You were to detach yourself from anything and everything that could possibly disappoint you. And so you detach yourself from all emotion and desire. You know, the Stoics were known for that motto that we associate with Stoicism, keep a stiff upper lip. And that's because the whole idea of Stoicism is you you don't let anything, even tragedy, ruffle you. You remain in this emotionless, passionless, desireless state. And so, for example, the Stoics would say, detach yourself. Detach yourself from anything that could let you down. Detach yourself as much as possible from family and from possessions. Because these things won't make you content. Now, I want to point out to you, while there's a grain of truth in that, that is not Paul's way of learning contentment. That's not what Paul means by contentment. For Paul, contentment does not mean a passionless or emotionless or desireless life. For Paul, the contented person will still feel joy and grief. In fact, those very emotions are expressed in this very letter where Paul is displaying what contentedness means, he's doing so with a range of emotions. For Paul, we move towards contentment not by way of detachment, but by by way of attachment. Paul shows us here the way to become content is to attach yourself to Christ. Christ. You become content by uh, not by detaching yourself from things, but by attaching yourself to Christ. And indeed, I think Paul would say attaching yourself to Christ and to His story. Attaching yourself to Christ and to His kingdom. After all, Paul says here, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That could also be translated, I can do all things in Christ... Who strengthens me. It's not as if the strength is somehow separable from Christ. The strength is found in a relationship with Christ. The strength is in Christ Himself. In fact, the strength is Christ Himself. He is the source of this contentment. And so when we know Christ, when we trust Christ, when we live in Christ, when we love Christ and obey Christ, that's when we learn contentment. Contentment is is in Christ. Christ is contentment himself, the embodiment of contentment. You know, there are people who cite Philippians 4.13. I said it was really misused, used a lot out of context. Uh, there are people who have tried to use Philippians 4.13 and then wondered why it didn't work, You know, why they weren't able to hit the home run or ace the test. Philippians 4.13 has not worked for a lot of people because they have forgotten that the strength to do all things is found in Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 15 to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. And now Paul says here in Philippians 4, with me, in a sense Christ is saying to us, you can do all things. You You can do all things. But see, I think this also helps us understand what Paul means By all things. When he says, I can do all things, what are these all things? Does it mean I can do everything I want to do? That I can always accomplish my personal goals? Does it mean I can do everything somebody else wants me to do? Somebody else's goals for me? No, that's that's not it. No, no, no. That's not what is promised here. Christ does not strengthen you to do anything and everything you want to do for yourself. He does not strengthen you so you can go out and accomplish your own agenda for your life. All things here is in Christ. Just as much as the strength is in Christ, so the all things are in Christ as well. All things refers to what Christ wants me to do. What Christ wills for me to do. I can do everything Jesus wants me to do. Because he gives me strength. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what Paul is promising. And there's a great comfort in that. You might think, oh, there are a lot of things I probably want to do that Jesus doesn't want me to do. Well, yeah. But of course, he knows better. You can do everything Jesus wants you to do. And that's comforting. That means you can do everything you need to do. Christ gives you strength to fulfill his agenda. He gives you strength to fulfill His goals for your life. He gives you the strength. He gives you the grace. He gives you the wisdom to be content, no matter your circumstances, every day. To serve Him in the midst of those circumstances every day. That's what Christ promises to do for you here. But I think to really understand this, we have to go further. It's not just being attached to Christ that makes us content in all circumstances. It's being attached to what Christ is doing in the world. It's being attached to the story that Christ is telling It's finding yourself in that story that Christ is telling in the history of the world. And it's really that larger narrative that Paul sees himself living in that helps Paul make sense of his suffering and, yes, find contentment even in a Roman prison cell. See, Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. Isn't it interesting? In the passage I read in Luke 12, Jesus moves from telling his disciples to not worry to telling them to seek the kingdom of God. And that the Father will give them the kingdom. It's the Father's pleasure to give them the kingdom. How do you replace worry? How do you drive out worry? You stop seeking after all those things you're worried about. And you start seeking after the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the big story. It's the big thing that God is doing in the history of the world. Jesus came to inaugurate His kingdom through His death and resurrection. He came not just to change individual lives, but to change the world. History is all about the coming and advancing of Christ's kingdom. And we learn contentment when we learn to look at our lives in light of this larger story. When we learn to interpret our lives in light of Christ's kingdom. Then we start to learn contentment. Let me give you an example of this even from Paul's own life right here in Philippians. See, more than anything else, What Paul wanted after he became an apostle of Christ, what he wanted more than anything else was to preach the gospel. He wanted to preach the gospel far and wide throughout the Roman Empire, and he especially wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. He wanted to preach to Caesar. He wants to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Caesar. He wants to stand in front of Caesar and say, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. That is Paul's overall ambition in life. And he expresses that desire in a lot of places, especially in his early letters. He expresses that ambition in various ways. Now, jump down to the close of this. We didn't read it, but towards the close of this letter in Philippians 4, there's a little hint as to what's going on here in verses 1 and 2. Paul greets the saints in Philippi. And then he tells the Philippian church that the saints who are here with me, as I'm writing this letter, greet you. And then Paul says, especially those of Caesar's household. Okay, You might just read right over that and not even you know, think twice about it, but it's a significant little detail. Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, Philippians prided themselves in being citizens of the Roman Empire. Paul here says, those of Caesar's household greet you. Paul was taken to Rome as a prisoner. Uh, it was not the way he expected. He did expect to go to Rome, but this was not the way he expected to go there. But he does get there. He does get to Rome. And even as a Roman prisoner, he continues to preach. He preaches from his jail cell. He preaches from prison. And guess what? God gives him converts. Somehow he was making converts by preaching the Gospel even from prison. And so the Gospel was beginning to work its way into Caesar's household, into Caesar's administration, into Caesar's family. Christ was advancing His kingdom through Paul's ministry, but not exactly the way Paul himself had planned. Paul didn't expect to go to Rome in chains. Now he's in Rome in chains. He's preaching the Gospel, and lo and behold, God is working through it. Back in chapter 1, of this letter. In verse 13, he says his imprisonment has actually served to advance the Gospel. And why? Well, he explains it's because the Gospel is becoming known to the whole imperial guard. The imperial guard, the praetorian guard. These are the guards who are stationed in Caesar's palace. His household guardians. His secret service. They're converting. Caesar's own bodyguards are becoming Christians. Paul's preaching from prison, is slowly but surely penetrating the Roman Empire in order to convert it from the inside out. See, all Paul wanted to do was travel freely and preach. Those were Paul's plans. But as is so often the case, Jesus had other plans. Jesus planned for Paul to get arrested and jailed because Jesus knew the Gospel could actually advance more effectively if Paul was in chains. And so why is Paul content in prison? Because he looks at his imprisonment in light of the kingdom of God, in light of the story of the kingdom. And so Paul can be content in jail because now he sees that his suffering is not in vain. His suffering is part of a bigger story. It's part of a bigger story. And that shows him that really all of his lacks are gains and all of his setbacks are actually victories. And even his imprisonment is serving to advance the Gospel and further God's kingdom. See, this is what contentment means. It means looking at your life especially your trials and your setbacks in life of God's kingdom. Contentment means taking the long view and looking at the big picture, getting outside of your little bubble, the bubble of your life, and looking at what God is doing in the world all around you and how God can even use your suffering to further His kingdom in the world. Being content means recognizing that God's plans are not your plans, but God's plans are always better in the end. Being content means learning to place your trials and your struggles in this bigger story that God is weaving, this bigger story that God is telling. See, trials really are the test of contentment. It's certainly true. Things can be going well and you can still be discontent. But it's really in trials and struggles that contentment is tested when things are not going your way, when it seems like all the forces of the universe have arrayed themselves against you, how can you possibly stay content? In those times, that's when your peace is really tested. But if your contentment is in Christ, if it's really in Christ Changing circumstances, even difficult circumstances, are not going to take your contentment away. Because those circumstances can't take Christ away. If Christ is your contentment, no trial, no struggle can take your contentment away. Because those trials and those struggles can't take Christ away from you. They cannot separate you from Christ. They cannot separate you from the love of Christ. But let me give you the flip side of this too. If you're not content right now, changing circumstances will not make you content. If you're not content with your money situation right now, doubling the amount of money you have would not create contentment. Do you believe me when I say that? Okay, Some of you are think, well, at least I'd like to try and see, right? <laughs> no. You could double what's in your bank account and it would not make you any more content if you're not contented right now. If you're not content in your current job, changing jobs will not make you a contented person. You'll just take your your discontentedness into a new location. Into a new place of work. It may be a much better job, but it's still going to be the same you working it. And you are discontent. That's the problem. The problem is not the job. The problem is your discontented heart. Contentment can never be found in circumstances because circumstances are never stable. Contentment is found in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you're a contented person, then it would somehow be wrong to change jobs or to seek to build your wealth. Being content, again, doesn't mean you are desireless or passionless. It doesn't mean your life has to be static. Contentment doesn't mean settling for less when you could have more. Rather, contentment be, means being settled whether you get what you want or not. Because you're settled in Christ and your identity is settled in Him. It's interesting to put this passage together with 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's giving a range of instructions to the Corinthians and he says things like this. He says if you are a slave, if you happen to be a, a slave in the Corinthian church and you're offered your freedom, you have an opportunity for freedom, you should take it. Because it's better to be free than to be a slave. We could say, hey, if you're working a crummy job right now and a better job, a more suitable job comes along, you can take it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you are single, it's okay. If you want to be married uh, and, and, and to get married, if there is an opportunity... But what Paul wants us to see is that the contented and the discontented person will pursue a different job in entirely different ways. The contented single person versus the discontented single person will seek marriage in a completely different way. If you're discontented now, getting what you want, a spouse or a new job, is not going to make you happy. In fact, getting what you want might make you even more miserable. If you're not contented now, you won't be contented then. Contentment doesn't depend upon changing circumstances. In fact, sometimes getting what we want is actually the worst thing that could happen to us. It could actually be the worst thing that happens to us. That's actually a lesson that uh, many of us have to learn the hard way, and sadly some never learn it. But getting what you want could be the worst thing for you. Uh, and, and, And... And again, if you don't learn to practice contentment in Christ, you're going to go through life miserable no matter what kind of circumstances do around you. Sometimes we simply have to change the radio station that is playing in our heads. Our minds can get stuck in unhelpful thought patterns that keep us discontent. But again, what Paul is showing us here, what Paul has learned, and what we must learn as well, is that without Christ at the center of your life, happiness is always going to be a moving target for you, and you're never going to hit it. Because you're just going to be thinking, oh, if I could only have that, I'd be happy. And then you get it, and you realize you're still not happy. And then you think, well, if I could have that, I'll be happy. And then you get that, and you're still not happy. Happiness is a moving target, and it always eludes you. Because you're seeking happiness in the wrong places. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking in terms of have-nots and might-have-beens. And if-onlys. If only I had this, then I'd be happy. If only that hadn't happened, then I, you know, if only that hadn't gone wrong, then I'd be happy. And you end up chasing your tail, seeking and never finding, knocking and never getting an answer. And it's no way to live. It's no way to live. Don't go through your life thinking, if only, if only, if only. We say that to be content, you know, to be content, I I just need a little more money. If I just had a little more business. If I could just get a little more done. If I just had a little bit better grades. Then I'd be content. And what Paul is saying is, no, you don't need those things to be content. What you need is Jesus. You don't need more money or more business to be content. You need more Jesus. You will be content in Christ or you will not be content at all. Contentment is found in Christ alone. That's Paul's secret. Paul's secret to a contented life is Christ Himself. The reality is you know, all of us can envision this perfect life for ourselves. We can imagine it and it can captivate our imaginations and then we start to aspire to that. But the reality is there is no perfect life for any of us in this world. There is only a perfect life. Christ. And again, if you don't find contentment in Christ, you're not going to find it at all. There will always be a gap between what you want and your circumstances. What you want and what your real life circumstances are. And unless that gap gets filled with Jesus Himself, you're going to go through life unfulfilled and unhappy. Again, we have to learn Paul's lesson. Only Christ can ultimately satisfy. We waste so much time chasing all these other things thinking this is what will finally make me happy. And Paul says, no, the key to your happiness and the source of your contentment, you've had it all along right here in the Gospel. To be content is to be captivated by God. You know who the most contented being in the universe is? God Himself. God is perfectly and infinitely content in himself. God is at peace. God is free. God is joyful. And he shares these blessings with us as we seek them in him. It's the only way to find these things. The art or skill of finding contentment is recognizing that the good life we seek, the the peace and the joy and the freedom we want, is only to be found in God Himself. All those other goods, money and family and, and marriage and children and jobs and homes and vacations, they're all wonderful in their place. They're all very good things to have, but they're all incomplete. And none of them can satisfy. None of them can fill the void. Augustine, who knew a thing or two about learning contentment himself, said this. He said, everyone wants to be happy, but not everyone wants to live in the way by which one can actually be happy. We all want to be happy, but so few of us seem to be willing to live in the way that happiness can actually be found. We try to seek happiness in all these other goods, They're just the shadow. God is the reality. There is only one good, so complete, so absolutely perfect, that it leaves nothing further to be desired. And that good is God Himself. The psalmist had learned this. The psalmist had learned Paul's secret of contentment as well. In Psalm 27, David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze Upon His beauty. This is the one desire that overrode every other desire in His life. To behold the beauty of God. The psalmist in Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but You? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. Now do you have other things on earth that you desire besides God? Other desires that compete with your desire for God? The psalmist says, if you want to be happy, make God your central desire. We are only discontent because we settle for less than God himself. We trade out the ultimate and eternal good of God himself in order to go dumpster diving for all kinds of trinkets and trash that we think will satisfy us only to get them and find out that no, they don't satisfy. And so we dive into the dumpster again, hoping this time we'll pull out some trinket that will finally make us happy. And we do this because we're foolish. Because our senses have been dull. Because we believe the lies of the enemy. You can be content with nothing less than God Himself. With nothing less than Christ. Indeed, the Father finds His contentment in the Son. He says that the Son's baptism, this is my beloved Son, in whom my soul delights. Now, the Father's soul delights in the Son, shouldn't you find your soul's delight in the Son as well? Isn't that your only hope of finding true delight in Jesus Himself? C.S. Lewis actually turned this into an argument for the existence of God. It's called the argument from desire. It goes something like this. Lewis says... Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So there's a desire and there's some corresponding object out in the world that will satisfy that desire. Otherwise the desire wouldn't be there. He says a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. So he goes on to say, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We all have a a longing and a yearning in our souls that nothing in this world can satisfy. That desire, that yearning is sometimes awakened maybe by a beautiful sunset in the evening, You know, and you see that beautiful sunset and it evokes this desire, but then the sun goes down and that's it. It's momentary. It's fleeting. That desire may be awakened by holding your your firstborn child in your arms and thinking, ah, this is it. And then you realize, no, that's that's not going to ultimately satisfy my longing. There is a longing and a yearning at the center of the human soul that can only be met in God. And the thing is, when that desire is met in God, then you can live happily with all kinds of other unfulfilled desires in the rest of your life because the central desire has been fulfilled. If those peripheral desires go unfulfilled, that's okay. You can live happily anyway. God alone can satisfy. Christ alone can make you content. This is where our restless hearts find their rest. Again, Augustine, he had so many good things to say along these lines. Augustine prayed, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. We want to say amen to Augustine's prayer. Through Christ, you can do something better than achieve some kind of great feat. Through Christ, you can do something much, much greater than accomplishing some great feat in athletics or academics or in your career. Christ will produce in you a miracle. A sheer miracle of grace, the miracle of contentment. A contentment, a a peace, and a freedom that triumphs over circumstances. Christ is yours. Christ is the secret to this contentment. Christ is yours. And so all of his peace and his joy are yours as well. Let's pray and give God thanks. God, we do give You thanks for being such a good and gracious and glorious God. We thank You for giving Yourself to us in Christ. And we ask that You would fill us with Your love and Your joy that we might be content in You. May the valley of every trial lead us to a higher mountain. May every evil we suffer prepare us for a greater glory. May we be content in every circumstance, whether we experience abundance or poverty, whether in sickness or in health. May we be content. Because Christ is in us and we are in Him. May Christ strengthen us for contentment. May our souls delight in Him. This we pray in His name, giving you thanks and praise. Amen.